Thanks so much. It's a great honor to be in Oxford. Uh, Richmond can consider, I think, in this country the heartland of transitional justice, one of the areas or one of the places in the country where the most exciting research in transitional justice takes place. And um, you mentioned being well-traveled. Uh, it's actually very hard to get from Cambridge to Oxford, uh, <laughs> as you know. Uh, so I, I'm hardly here. And to my surprise, as I mentioned last time, I was suddenly invited twice to come to Oxford this term, also to give a talk um, in uh, the, the Public International Law Seminar series earlier this term. So I decided I, I have to present something different. So last time I, I talked about my book, and I thought this time let me talk about something that is not in the book because it wasn't the original research question, but a, an experience that came up during that research. Um, and then I said, okay, I can't make this argument in the book because the book is not meant to address, address this issue, but uh, I do want to write about that separately. So that's the argument I'm going to present today. And I developed that argument uh, together with Professor Wouter Werner from the VU University in Amsterdam. <clears throat> so there we go. Institutions enforcing international criminal law are often mentioned in the same breath as global justice. So, the first prosecutor of the first permanent international criminal court referred to the Rome Statute as a global justice system. And he uh, obtained the International Unitarian Award for Advancing Global Justice. He wrote a piece, an article, the International Criminal Court Seeking Global Justice. An ICC flyer encourages people to apply for internships, say, saying, can your skills promote lasting global justice? The ICC website refers to International Criminal Justice Day as commemorating the landmark steps that the international community is taking to reach the common goal of global justice. The ICC president at the groundbreaking cer ceremony for the new premises of the ICC says that this, the ICC will stand as a permanent symbol of global justice. The ICC president praised the state party for being one of the strongest supporters in pursuing our common goal of global justice. It's not just ICC officials that refer to the ICC and in, in, in line or together with global justice. Also the UN Secretary General referred to the ICC as the keystone of a growing system of global justice. News outlets talked about the Obama administration shifting its policy on global justice by beginning to provide assistance to the ICC. And international criminal <coughs> lawyers have written books, Crimes Against Humanity, The Struggle for Global Justice. The Coalition for the ICC has a blog called Hashtag Global Justice. Now, the link between global justice and the enforcement of international criminal law through institutions is therefore often made, but it's seldom inquired. Now, either it is considered self-evident, of course international criminal law pursues global justice, or these statements are quietly considered triumphalist and therefore not taken seriously and ignored. But Wouter Werner and I had the impression that these claims are consequential. They, the, the claim that international criminal law is the way to, towards global justice has consequences. So we started asking questions about this. What are the consequences of portraying international criminal law as the avenue towards global justice? And what are the social economic structures underpinning <coughs> the idea that ICL is 
more than one particular type of justice. It's not just international criminal justice, but it's actually a form of global justice. And these questions were addressed not just by ourselves, but we invited a group of scholars to think about this, which led to a special issue of the Journal of International Criminal Justice that came out earlier this year. And I present here the draft or the, the table of contents, so people who reflected upon these questions. Um, <coughs> but the rest of this talk, I will just present the piece that Wouter and Werner and I wrote. But if you're interested, do look at all these other pieces who reflect upon the same question, the same relationship. <coughs> so the starting point of my talk today is that as Jack Balkin has eloquently said, that human longing for justice stands in a paradoxical relation to the institutional practices designed to satisfy this, this desire. Ideals of justice need institutional translation in order to be effective. But the very same institutionalization may corrupt the ideals we hold dear. As he here says in the quote that is on the screen. So the implication of this insight that our the institutionalization always falls short of the ideals is that because positive laws and institutions always fall short of the of what we are trying to achieve, justice should always be open to contestation and there should be space for alternative conceptions of justice and one should refrain from trying to monopolize the discourses on justice. Now that is even more important if one argues that one is doing global justice because the word global implies that something bigger is at stake than the opposite, ordinary, local, national. Um, because the values in involved are supposed to um, be global values and therefore perhaps hierarchically superior values. And therefore, global justice is often a justification for intervention by outsiders because and, and the interest of a cosmopolitan community. Now, the, the world in which we live, as you know, is a pluralist society, pluralist world with all kinds of groups, including all kinds of conceptions of justice. And within this global society, these conceptions of justice overlap, but they can also compete. Now, if one type of justice claims to be global justice, there's a risk that alternative conceptions of justice get marked marginalized. And it is that that I wish to focus on today. Now, on the one hand, if you look at the relationship between international criminal law and this, um, the, the celebration of diversity, and including the celebration of diverse conceptions of justice, seem to go very well and very to go um, hand in hand. Because if you look at, for instance, the preamble of the Rome Statute, it talks about peoples united by common bonds, their cultures pieced together in a shared heritage. And that is, and there is a concern in the Rome Statute that this delicate mosaic may be shattered at any time by unimaginable atrocities that shock the conscience of mankind. 
Indeed, if you go back historically, like what, one of the reasons that Hannah Arendt defended uh, international criminal law was precisely because these crimes went, were international crimes because they were a threat to human diversity. She said that the conduct that was, uh, that was uh, criminalized in international law constitutes an attack on human diversity as such, that is, upon a characteristic of the human status, without which the very words mankind or humanity would be devoid of meaning. So therefore, at least one of the rationales of international criminal law, and I'm not saying that this is the rationale of international criminal law because there are several rationales of criminal law, but at least one of the rationales of international criminal law is the protection of diversity. And I think, as I just mentioned, that you can see that rationale also back in the Rome Statute. Now, the argument that we're going to present, we won't attribute to Hannah Arendt. She used, um, she said that because of human diversity, we need international criminal law. What we are saying is that it, now international criminal law actually has been established as a very solid and a very, at least a practice, a dominant practice, we should not just draw the justification for international criminal law from the protection of diversity, but we should also see the protection of diversity as, an, as imposing an important limitation on international criminal law. It also sets boundaries, and I'll show you in a second. We argue that now international criminal law has established itself as a dominant field, there may actually be a risk that it is undermining precisely that one goal that we've just discovered, or that we've just established, namely the protection of diversity. And that is the re result of four interrelated developments. First, the field of international criminal law is constant, constantly confronted with its own limitations. And that is natural. That is precisely the result of the, the, the fact what Jack, that we started this talk with, the Jack Balkin observation, that our human, the institutions that we establish for achieving justice will always fall short of our ideals of justice. So if we think about the International Criminal Court, or international criminal institutions generally, they are I, the idea is that they will do justice universally, but of course it is a court with only limited jurisdiction, so it cannot. The idea is that it will do the best type of justice for victims, but as we know from empirical research, just victims have been hugely frustrated with the limited extent to which the international criminal law can do justice for victims. And international criminal courts are supposed to do the best type of justice for the accused, but in fact, international criminal courts have often taken recourse to very illiberal um, practices from a defendant's perspective. So this is this gap that Jack Balkin observed between our ideals of justice and the reality. Now what has been the response of the field of international criminal law to that? A very natural response, and it's the second development, more and more international criminal law. So it's not accepted, okay look, there are um, some not ideal consequences of international criminal law, therefore we better stay away from it. No, we should therefore have more international criminal law and we should have better international criminal law. So we should have 
for instance, in, in the beginning there were only a few international criminal tribunals with limited jurisdiction, we should have more international criminal tribunals with wider jurisdiction, so that it actually can encompass the entire world. Or we should have more, um, we should also start thinking about victims' rights in international criminal courts. Um, and we should do more for defendants, although this area is probably the least, uh, has received least attention. So that's the second development. Confronted with the limitations of the field, there's been a push for more and better international criminal law. Um, and one of the um, things is that, it, so it has been accepted also that it's not just one way of approaching conflict, it's actually been claimed that this is now the accepted norm for conflict resolution. So it's, it's becoming more and more dominant. And that's related to then the third development, is that the frame of international criminal law, because it has been increasingly institutionalized, has been used increasingly to frame political disputes. So more and more we see that um, electoral disputes across the world are suddenly cast into the language of international criminal law. Or Greek citizens have said that the austerity measures taken against them, or taken, you know, not, not intentionally against them, but they framed it as being um, international crimes. Um, rebel movements have framed their fight against their opponents as a fight against genocidaire. So we see that because of the institutionalization of international criminal law, and because international criminal law courts being seen as powerful, not powerful in the sense of that they have armies to enforce international criminal law, but they're normatively powerful. They help sway in that sense all over the world because if you manage to get your enemy charged by the ICC, you transform your enemy from a domestic enemy into an enemy of mankind. And in that sense, they're very powerful. And that's what we see that increasingly political disputes are being translated into the language of international criminal law. Now the fourth development, oh, and sorry, that's um, what an example here is the Ugandan government that uh, in, in the letter, in its referral letter that some of us here know very well, um, referred to the newly established International Criminal Court and, and its promise of global justice. So it's, it externalized the LRA problem which it had for several decades and had never been able to, w to win that conflict into an international conflict by going to the ICC and its promise of global justice. <coughs> and that's the fourth development, namely that it's being framed not merely as a matter of international criminal law, but as a matter of global justice. And that's the point that I started out with, that it is a claim not just to re represent one type of justice, but this is actually global justice, which is normatively higher than just one particular type of justice. So to summarize these four developments, international criminal law is confronted with its shortcomings, but in response to that it hasn't been defeated. It has said, okay, we need more and we need better international criminal law. As a result, we've seen an institutionalization of international criminal law, and that has been successful in the sense that 
also more and it is seen as being powerful and therefore more and more types of conflict or disputes or socio-political issues have been framed in the framework of international criminal law. And finally, the last development is that this has been framed not just as a matter of pursuing one type of justice, international criminal justice, but actually as an avenue towards global justice. Now, the, the point we are making in our paper is that is consequential. And one of the risks of presenting it as global justice is that alternative conceptions of justice get pushed to the margins. <coughs> And that is what we call the dark side of, this mono of, of the successfulness of the presentation of international criminal law as global justice. And Arundhati Roy has made a similar point when it comes to the, the, the world of globalization, that um, as a result of globalization, there are certain individuals you no longer see. She says, a light which shines brighter and brighter on the few people and the rest are in darkness wiped out. They simply can't be seen. You, so you stop seeing something and then slowly it's not possible to see it. It never existed and there is no possibility of an alternative. Now there is a risk with all this attention for international criminal justice as the road towards global justice that alternative conceptions of justice are also in that darkness and not seen anymore. Now, the paradox that we're pointing out is that, therefore, a field that was one of its rationales is the protection of diversity risks, by being so successful, actually to go against one of the, its own rationales because it goes against the diversity in conceptions of justice, the diversity in articulations and experiences of alternative types of justice. Now, let me give you five examples of, of alternative conceptions. First is, the, is justice as the restoration of relationships. Or, but actually before I go into the conceptions, let me immediately say what I'm not saying, because otherwise there's a risk that at the end I'll um, uh, get some, a lot of criticism for that. So first of all, I don't have, it, as you notice, I don't have a defined a definition, a fixed definition of justice. And I don't present it as such because our argument is precisely that justice is politically contested and that there should be space for that. Secondly, none of the conceptions of justice that we present, we present as, okay, this one is better than that one. We don't say that international criminal justice is better than local justice to the extent that there is local justice, um, but we don't present local justice as better than international criminal justice either. The argument is that there should be space for contestation among these different types of justice. And we don't want to present a culturally relativistic argument either. It's not that we're saying, look, different cultures have different conceptions of justice. In fact, I think that many of these conceptions of justice exist in all societies. Which ones get prioritized depends on the context. Um, it depends on the time and it depends on um, alternative uh, factors being present. For instance, what I'll do is I'll focus a lot on um, some examples that I came across in fieldwork in Uganda and Sudan. Now, take the Acholi. First of all, very often it's said, well, the Acholi, they focus on restoration of relationship and they're not punitive at all. Which is in fact not true. If you look at the Acholi 
um, how they approach or, or the demands for justice, it really depends on who is the perpetrator. And Holly Porter in her PhD research uh, for the LSE has a brilliant example of this when it comes to rape. She interviews women and then one woman says, when, when asked, okay, you've been raped, what do you want to happen? She says, I want this to be fixed in my community, not to go to courts. This is something of my community and we have to do this through traditional mechanisms. Then another interview, a woman has been raped and the question is, how should this be resolved? And the woman says, I want this has to go to courts and there has to be criminal punishment. The interviewee is not, in, not just in both instances in a choli, it's the same woman. So the same woman once says, I want this to be dealt with with my own community. The other time she says, I want this to go to the formal courts and punitive justice. Now what explains the difference is who is the perpetrator. In one instance it's the perpetrator from the community, so it should be done according to the local uh, mechanisms. In the other instance it's somebody from outside the community it's, um, it's a soldier, a UPDF soldier, who doesn't belong there and therefore the local mechanisms wouldn't work. Now, this argument made by Holly Porter, I think, illustrates the fact that the, the, the how important context is. So it's not that because it's a choli, people have a particular preference for a particular type of justice. It depends on all on the facts of that case. Similarly, it's an issue of timing. When I went for the first time to Uganda in 2008, and in northern Uganda, people were extremely um, against the ICC because they feared that it would have a backlash against the northern Ugandans, northern Ugandans because the LRA was still operating in the area. Three years later, people were much more positive about the ICC because the fear of the LRA was less because the LRA had left northern Uganda. So um, it, 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 it depends on time. So again, the point that I'm going to make about the alternative conceptions of justice, it's not to say this is what people here think about justice, this is what people there think about justice. It's just to show that there are alternative conceptions of justice um, in all societies at all times. So the first alternative conception of justice is justice as the restoration of, of relationships. And this is really what Dear Charlie in 2008, um, or 2006, 2008, that period pushed. And it was interesting that they argued this very strongly as in opposition to the ICC. They said, we have our own type of justice, and we focus on this, whereas you focus on exclusion, we focus on inclusion. Now you could say, actually, the ICC has not at all led to um, marginalizing alternative conceptions of justice, because the Northern Ugandans has been very, have been very successful in internationally portraying their alternative conception of justice as a form of justice. And it's true, they were in the New York Times, Mato Oput, uh, as opposed to the ICC, it's a different way of, of achieving justice. In the peace agreement, the draft peace agreement that was eventually never signed by Joseph Kony, but still in a legal document, Mata Oput was, um, and other traditional forms of justice were recognized as a way of doing justice. But the point here is not whether they were recognized as, alternative, as additional uh, possibilities of doing justice. The point was more as to which one is hierarchical, hierarchically superior. And then it was always presented that if 
and it was particularly in the context, of course, of wanting to replace or displace the ICC. If you want to do that, then you have to meet the international standards and you have to be like international justice. So one of the ICC judges, and actually it was the Ugandan judge, said in Uganda the following, crimes against humanity, genocide, aggression against other states and war crimes are internationally condemned and cannot be tried by traditional courts but by the ICC. You cannot expect someone who caused the death of 100 people to be tried in a traditional court if you're looking for justice to be done. You must convince the international community that justice was done and that the punishment was proportionate with the crime. So what happens when things get framed in the language of this is global justice, it's not just that the local, the local group of people can decide, okay, this is what justice means for us. You need to convince the international community that justice has been done. Now, the um, people negotiating in Juba about the Juba Peace Agreement were very much aware of this. And it's also true uh, of the LRA delegation. They were aware of what Rajagopal calls the somewhat tragic reality that resistance must work to some extent with the parameters established by that which is being resisted. And how is that um, clear? If you look in the Accountability Reconciliation Agreement, defini the definition of Mato of Put is the traditional ritual performed by the Acholi after full accountability and reconciliation has been attained between parties formerly in conflict after full accountability. Now, you, you see the repetition of after full accountability. That's because the LRA was aware that what is necessary to meet the international standards of the international criminal justice, you have to have accountability. So the drafter of the agreement had written this without the last one after full accountability. But the LRA delegation said, no, 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 we have to emphasize that this is about accountability. So the drafter said, look, here, after full accountability. No, 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 we have to make sure that it's really, that we are here doing the thing that they want to have done internationally. So it was inserted a second time. So it's just to show that um, a lot of what happened is that processes like Mata Oput that are actually restorative in nature, they're not about punishment, they're not about... Um, uh, retributive justice are framed in the language of criminal justice because that becomes the framework that, um, that dominates. Now a second example is um, justice is ending ongoing violations. Um, let's go back to that claim on the, on the website of the ICTY. It says that the tribunal has laid the foundation for what is now the accepted norm for conflict resolution. Now you can of course agree that it's the accepted norm of how to deal with international crimes. But saying that it's an accepted norm for conflict resolution is quite different. Is this, is this international criminal justice a way to address the root causes of a conflict? Um, and what we saw in, um, in Northern Uganda was that there was an alternative vision about Justice, justice is really ending the conflict. That was the first priority. And they went to The Hague to argue that to the prosecutor. But it didn't feature in the press releases, at least not in the second press release that was then issued, as because it was not considered relevant for justice. Ending a conflict is something else than justice. A third alternative conception of justice is justice as redistribution. 
Now you know international criminal or international crimes are often the result of conflict, but um, redistributional issues are often the cause of conflict. It's about access to wealth, access to power. And for many, if you, for instance, in Darfur, a traditional leader said, what is justice? Justice is security, power sharing, and wealth sharing. That's the definition of justice. Now, in international criminal law, this doesn't really feature. It's, it's context, perhaps, at most, but it's not what is being adjudicated. And I'm not saying, by the way, that it should be adjudicated, but it's in, in the context of international criminal law. Now, the fourth alternative conception is justice is accountability and punishment. Now, you may be surprised that this is an alternative conception, because you could say, look, that's what international criminal law is all about. But according to some, not. According to Nacholi Elder, if the LRA leaders are taken to The Hague, they will be locked up with air conditioning and, with, and will live the lifestyle of Ugandan ministers. But they will have to come here and make up with the community. Let them live with the people whose ears they've chopped off. Let them see for the rest of their lives what suffering they've caused. That is punishment. In our view, ICC punishment is very light. Let them morally come and confess. Now, this is now also very much with the arrest of Dominic Ongwen um, and his transfer to The Hague very much an issue. Should Dominic Ongwen, is it justice if he's being tried in The Hague and then kept in a prison somewhere in the world? Or, as some Acholi have argued, what is justice is that if he has to come here and see what he has done on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, a fifth um, alternative conception that we discuss in the paper, and again, I'm not saying that these are exhaustive alternative conceptions, is justice is equality. Now, and I'm not talking here about material equality, because that has to do more with justice as redistribution, but um, formal equality before the law. Now, as you all know, international criminal justice is selective, and to some extent it has to be selective, because you can never try all cases in the world. But of course the question is, what ex inspires the selection? If that selection is being based on where can we have the strongest deterrent effect, or what are the most serious crimes, then it's of course the selectiveness of each criminal justice system. But the selection is also based to a large extent on the basis of where the courts can get cooperation, as we've seen with the um, Rwanda Tribunal, and now we see with the ICC, both in situations, so for instance the fact that in Uganda it's gone mostly after the rebels and not after anything about the government, no formal investigation opened, but we still also see it in a global level. Uh, all the investigations have so far been into Africa. Now, um, that is observable to everybody, but it is, of course, often denied, or, it, or not denied, but it is often justified that this is required by the law, because, as we see in this quote of the ICC, the ICC operates strictly within the mandate and legal framework created by the Rome Statute, the founding of the Treaty of the Court, and cannot take political factors into account. Decisions are taken independently on the basis of the law and the available evidence, and are not based on regional or ethnic considerations. Now, these types of justifications often give um, those who have the sentiment that it is inspired by other things than the law, the feeling that their experience, that there actually is some form of equality going on, um, is justified by the law. So it, it seems to be entrenching inequality. Now, is this bad or good? It, again, it depends on which cup you're drinking from. 
if you're drinking from the justices accountability cup, then a bit of inequality is fine because it's better to have more justice than none at all. But if you're drinking from the justices equality cup, then a half full glass, um, it's, it's actually half empty rather than half full because with every case that is being done, there seems to be less justice rather than more. So this is just from the perspective try to adopt some different conceptions of, or perspectives of different um, conceptions of justice. Now, so I've just given five examples of alternative conceptions of justice. And we are not in our paper criticizing international criminal law for not pursuing these alternative conceptions of justice. Now, that's not, not what international criminal law um, is responsible for. What we are concerned about is the prioritization by actors of international criminal law as the only avenue towards global justice. Um, and pushing therefore alternative conceptions of justice to the margins. Now one would often say, but actually they're not presenting international criminal law as the only way of justice. Very often it is recognized, particularly in the field of transitional justice, that these alternative conceptions of justice should be there as well and actually should be pursued hand in hand. The point, and then often reference is made to the principle of complementarity. Now, the difficulty with that is twofold. First of all, legally, if you look at the principle of complementarity in the Rome Statute, it's not about replacing one conception of justice by another. It's replacing one criminal jurisdiction by another criminal jurisdiction. So the conception of justice remains that of criminal justice, but just at a different level. You move from the international to the domestic. The second is that, true, ideally, all these conceptions of justice are pursued hand-in-hand hand and at the same time. But we do not live in a world of endless complementarities. The key question is what happens when the, limit, the resources are limited, either financially or politically, that they cannot be pursued hand-in-hand hand because of tensions. Which framework or which type of justice then gets the priority? And the framing of one type of justice as the route towards global justice risks marginalizing these other conceptions of justice that may in some, or they, they cannot be um, prioritized. Now, why is this the case? As I indicated in the beginning, it's, it's one of the consequences of the institutionalization of one form of justice at the global level. Whereas all these other conceptions of justice that we've gone through have not been internationally institutionalized. So we don't have, for instance, a global truth commission or a global wealth distribution commission or a global equality commission. And of course, the natural response would be, well, if, if the conception of criminal justice is internationally institutionalized, we should perhaps also institutionalize these other conceptions. But we're not sure about that, because as soon as you institutionalize everything at the international level, then still there's a risk that one dominates uh, the other or gets the, the hierarchical superior position. What is necessary, we argue, is not so much filling a vacuum, but precisely opening the space, uh, keeping a vacuum um, for contestation. And that is achieved by recognizing, as we set out in the beginning, that the that protection of diversity may have been one of the justifications for international criminal law, 
but therefore it should also be one of the limitations. So that as soon as alternative conceptions of justice get threatened or pushed to the margins, international, international criminal law goes against one of its own founding um, inspirations. And I think I stop here um, by saying that the, in conclusion, justice, not unlike democracy or the rule of law, needs therefore limitations on its enforcement and space for contestation for its own preservation. Thank Great. you. Thank you so much.